comes from a pre-scientific person, people in the Old Testament. Everything that they couldn't understand in the Old Testament was put down to that God was teaching them something or God was unhappy with them. And, and remember that they didn't understand how the weather happened. They didn't understand how viruses happened. They didn't understand how cyclones or earthquakes happened. So everything came from the hand of God. And the issue for us is we're not pre-scientific, so we know that this virus has human causes. We're not sure of exactly the full extent of the origins of this virus and its terrible rampage through the world, but we do know that it's of, uh, of some very serious mistakes in one part of the world which had dramatic impact on all our lives now. And we know that when we come to the New Testament, Jesus didn't send a plague, he didn't send suffering, he didn't turn people into pepper of salt, um, he never sends a fire and brimstone down on communities. He talks about justice and fidelity and love and forgiveness and compassion. And it strikes me as though they're the very virtues we need to get through this pandemic right now. So we don't need to revert to a pre-scientific, tyrannical God right now. Um, we need to hold on to the very values that Jesus said was going to get us through um, every moment of our life, both the happiest ones and the really tough ones right now. It is, though, something of a mystery that the virus itself, if we take it independent of the awful harm that it is doing, it's an amazing thing in the way it works and how it disguises itself and tricks people's immune systems. It is part of creation. And if we're going to say that God created all that is, it is part of God's creation. I think we make a distinction in theology between God permitting evil in the world and God sending evil to the world. And we haven't been good on that in the Catholic Church, um, certainly not in my lifetime anyway. So if someone got cancer, oh, well, that was God's will. But God can't will cancer. God can't kill kids. God can't send accidents because they're destructive things. And once we say that God is about inflicting destruction, we're really in theological trouble. We have a tyrannical, unpredictable God who has a whole evil side to him. But we believe God is light. In him there is no darkness. We believe Jesus who said to have seen me is to have seen the Father. I do nothing on my own. The Father and I are one. And therefore, if Jesus wasn't into destroying people and sending plagues and ripping people down, then nor is God. That Jesus not only came to fulfill the Old Testament and its expectations of the Messiah, he also came in significant degree to correct some of the worst excesses of the way we had imaged the Father before. So in and through Jesus' behaviour, we as Christians say, we see God in action. And I really need to hold on to that. So we do have a less than perfect world. Therefore, the possibility of evil exists. And therefore, we make bad decisions, which can have very destructive elements. So it's got, the, it's got a reality. Evil has, um, is a reality within our community. I'm not disputing it. I'm just saying that the origin of the, that evil and certainly the origin of its uh, ramifications right now is not in any active way um, God's will for the world right now. God's with all of us trying to fight it, look after each other, uh, have a good sense of our common responsibility to each other. So social distancing, um, trying to do everything we can for the common good and not putting our own ego and our own selves beyond what's good for the whole community right now. Yes, and it is interesting that Christians, um, a certain type of Christian, maybe they're more right-wing evangelical, do seem keen to latch on to this as a plague or a punishment and, and in some level 
ever was it thus? What, 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 do you ever wonder why they want to portray God in that light or why it is, given the overwhelming evidence from Christianity that that is not what Jesus wanted and indeed from Judaism when they began to realise that what God wanted was to make a covenant that even if they people deserted him, he would still love them and never leave them no matter what they did. I say provocatively in this article that I wrote for the London Tablet that if, um, uh, you know, some Christian's image of the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, is to have nasty God the Father in heaven, lovely Jesus and the bird, that's as rich as the Trinity gets for some Christians. But they've got this nasty God the Father in heaven, so they're happy with lovely Jesus because they can read about him in the Gospels, and they're not sure about the Holy Spirit that's sort of some bird hovering around the place. But nasty God the Father stays in their head. The problem with the theology of the Trinity is we say that when we see the Lord, Jesus in action, then we see God and the Spirit in action too. We don't have a God with three different personalities. We have three faces, three personae, we say, but one being, and they create together, redeem together, and make holy together. And so when we see Jesus in action, we see God definitively and finally in action. That's actually Christian theology. So some people latch on to those Old Testament stories because it's a convenient, rather neat uh, solution to deep pain. People who have lost people right now with this COVID virus throughout the world, they're in deep pain. All of us have, in social lockdown have had to think about our priorities in our life and how we look after one another and how we look after ourselves and what really matters. And, and we're really cut off from our loved ones physically right now. So there's been a lot of um, time for reflection if people wanted to take it. And it's in that context then that I think we need to really make sure that our theology is the very best it can be, rooted as it is completely in the revelation of God, in what Jesus did, who he was, what he said, and what the way forward, the way, the truth and the life is going to be for us, not just for his time, but for all times, including our own right now. And there is also a tendency, I think, which one would need to be careful about, given what you have said, even when people say, well, look at the world now, look at ecology, there's fish in Venice, you can see them in the canals, the animals are out in the streets, there's no pollution. And there's almost a sense as if that, and therefore God sent the virus so we could see all those good things. But that's equally as pernicious, isn't it? It is. Uh, in Catholic moral theology, we've always believed that uh, we we can learn things through the crosses in our life, through the crises in our life. Um, but that doesn't mean that God sent them in the first place. So the fact that I become a better person, um, that I become conscious of my neighbours, that I look after an elderly person across the road, um, that I drop some food at his or her door right now, is an entirely good thing. That's a God-given, amazing grace moment. That's fantastic. But the fact that that's drawn out, drawn out of us and the fact that we're able to do that well, um, that doesn't mean God sent the virus to make sure that happened. God could have done a lot of other things to make that happen as well. But what we do believe is that we do respond to difficult moments and resilience is one of the ways and good behaviour is one of the ways. We start to see how serious this is and then we start to say, well, I actually, even though it's a very small thing, I can make a contribution. And that's why all our behaviour right now in terms of staying with the lockdown, being so mindful of the elderly particularly, but 
everybody means that I have to forego some of my freedom right now. But I'm only trading off my freedom for an entirely higher good. And the higher good is that we can try and contain this virus and try and protect those who are most susceptible to get it and indeed to die. So we do grow through suffering. I'm not running from that. But that doesn't in any way mean that we therefore have to argue that the original source of the suffering was sent by God to teach us things. You can grow through these terrible events as happened in all of our lives without ever conceding, well, God sent it to do that. That just means God takes the cross and brings us to Easter Sunday. So God looks at the death of his own son by humanity, and his last word is light and life and goodness and life eternal for all of us. Well, that's the same here. We look at the Good Friday that the entire world is going through right now, and we're people of hope, we're people of commitment to one another and justice for all. So we have to come back and have the common good as the primary motivation of our lives right now, not my personal freedom. Richard, in your book on Where the Hell is God, you you spoke about the suffering of Tracy. I mean, she was a nurse. She was working with the Aborigine families now in Australia when this tragedy happened. She was so young to be left a quadriplegic. And there certainly was for you, your family, and most especially for Tracy, there was the cross. Did you see the resurrection in any of it? And what Did resurrection begin to mean anything for you? Because that's at the core of our faith. And yet, you know, some things are so intractable. I mean, it can't be undone. Tracy was a quadriplegic until she died. How did you work out resurrection in that context? I never want to romanticise Tracy's suffering or anybody else's suffering. And I don't want to go to... um Easter Sunday too quickly. Sometimes we've got to stay on Good Friday and on Holy Saturday um, and just sit with the devastation, with the sheer grief of the apostles and the disciples of uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, the Blessed Mother, who lost her only son. Um, so I don't want to. I don't want to run away from that. And and it was true that when my sister had her car accident and became a quadriplegic, there were several months. There was quite some time before. Um, I could even start to think of where the resurrection was or where light and life, we were just devastated, we were gutted. Um, we were full of grief and anger and questions and, and I think we just had to sit there. I think many people um, have to sit there. Some people very sadly never get out of that phase such as the depression that can come with this and that's understandable given what some people have to to live with what i have to say was able to turn me around a couple of things were able to turn me around or at least help me firstly was how good people were around us i love the idea of god has no hands but ours and the way that our family, our friends, the wider community moved in on my family in 1988 to look after us very quickly after Tracy's accident. Well, that's how God worked. God was in all of those people who looked after us in any and every way they possibly can. So that's the first one when I look back, that that was God caring for us and loving us and in a very hands-on way from making a meal or sending a card or a bunch of flowers to a call to crying with us to seeing Tracy to all the ways that we can practically look after each other. The second thing was that um, I was lucky that as a Jesuit I was um, with biblical scholars and philosophers and spiritual directors and others who could help me work through some of the big questions that I started asking about God and God's nature and those conversations when I look back were so privileged and I was so blessed and thank God I was able to share some of those things then in where the hell is God 
and hope that helps other people through really tough times like we're going through right now. And the third thing ultimately was a great gift that came in and through Tracy, that Tracy could have been the most bitter, angry person possible. So she becomes a quadriplegic at 28 and she dies on the Feast of St. Patrick on the 17th of March, 28 years later. So she's half her life abled, half her life profoundly disabled. She had three really rough years, but the last 25, she really came through that chronic depression that she had and she was the most switched on, um, engaged, engaging, um, incredibly focused person on what you were up to, how your life was going and encouraging you. And that was just amazing grace to me, that somebody who had every right to be bitter and angry and completely self-absorbed, boy, if ever I needed a sign of resurrection, it was that she could sit in a wheelchair and be pretty well other-focused most of the time. She still had good days and bad days. I don't want to run away from that. But the vast majority of the time of the last 25 years of her life, three bad years and then 25 years where she really was an incredible living lesson in how we can be resurrection for one another and that was simply in in being other focused that uh, okay this has happened to me that's the way it is let's get on with it now I hope I can encourage you to live the best life possible and that's the way she reacted responded to the world and everybody who knew her and you've met many people Pat who have met her that's the way she was for her whole life and Boy, if that's not the resurrection in a practical way, I don't know what is. Absolutely. And that came across so strongly in her own book, The Full Catastrophe. And it really helped people because in that book, there's no sense of um, self-preoccupation or or self-pity. And like, I don't want to run away from the fact that for some people, they get caught there and I understand why they get caught. But she really did receive extraordinary grace to be able to be a real resurrection and the full catastrophe is full of she wrote that book 10 years after she became a quadriplegic and reflected on her life before she was a quadriplegic and that's given so much hope to so many other people throughout the world and could do it now actually for people if they want to read it absolutely richard you mentioned there the steps that people can take even if it's a self-isolation staying away as an act of grace and giving to the world at this point in time what's it like for you in australia and for the jesuits and your jesuit community what's life like there well uh, australia it's geography is sometimes a curse we're at the end of the end of the earth and sometimes it's a gift and at the moment it's a bit of a gift so we've got 25 and a half million people in australia but we, we have six and a half six thousand seven hundred cases roughly of uh, covid19 at the moment and we've only got 91 people god rest their soul um, who have died and those are 91 families that are grieving so i'm not minimizing their shocking grief and pain but because we're an island and because new zealand are islands we've been able to contain it pretty quickly and i've got to say Australians who can be really gregarious and out there and we have great weather and we love the beaches and we like barbecues and we like partying and all of the things that were stereotypically Australian. I've got to say Australians have taken the shutdown really seriously. On the whole, I would think, you know, my sense is about 90, 95% of Australians have taken really seriously that this is not the moment to be selfish and egocentric and say that my freedom and my rights matter more than anything else. Almost everybody I know has um, really taken very seriously our responsibilities. And that's been true in our own Jesuit community. So I live in a parish community at the moment in Sydney, so all of our masses are online each day. 
And, you know, we're getting two and 3,000 people tuning into our online mass. We get seven, 8,000 people coming to Sunday mass online. Fantastic feedback there. Um, we put out newsletters for people every day to stay in contact with them through our schools and through our parishes so that they, they you know, they're, they're guided in the examine and in um, really articles that lift the spirit. We encourage people in our parishes and our school communities and the Jesuit community too to ring the vulnerable and um, people on the fringe, people who are living on their own. So all those sort of practical things. And then we just encourage people to be good neighbours that in their street, even if they haven't up till now known their neighbours, it's a really good thing to knock on a door, at least make a phone call, I guess, and say, have you got enough food? Can I do some shopping? All the things we're allowed to go out and do and maybe there's somebody around us who really needs us at this moment. And who knows, that could lead to a whole transformation of a neighbourhood community, which would be really wonderful. So I'd have to say that for the Jesuit community, we've got seven in our Jesuit community, and um, I'm not sure our vocation is ever to be monks. My vocation was never to be a monk. I I can't wait for this to be over, I can assure you. St. Ignatius said he wanted Jesuits with one foot in the air, and by that meant he meant we were meant to be pilgrims going somewhere. And in a lot of my ministry, I have been on the road. And I'm sort of looking forward to getting back to it, I've got to say. But then, you know, when... Every moment like this comes, you get another opportunity. So uh, earlier this year, I signed a contract for a new book with my American publishers, Paulus Press. And so, of course, I've swung into time I never thought I'd have right now to start reading and researching and indeed starting to write that new book. What so, will that be on, you know, Richard? The most. It's going to be on the law of love, Pat. Um, it's taking um, the Ten Commandments, the Beatitudes, um, love God, love your neighbour, love yourself, the Lord's Prayer, love is kind, love is patient, love is gentle, and the hard sayings of Jesus, and having a look that the law of love has to be the way. Uh, it's a meditation on those. It'll only be a, a short book, but it's a meditation on how love is meant to be the definitive revelation of the entire Christian life and paradigm. And so that's what I'm reflecting on right now. Well, wish you all the best with that and all the best in the lockdown in Australia. It's good to hear you say you're finding it tough because I think a lot of people are. It doesn't come naturally to some people. There are introverts who find it fine, but there are people who also find it a a challenge. And it's good that we can say that as well. Oh, we need to. We need to, the very first thing we need to do is own just how, like St. Ignatius says it in the spiritual exercises, he says it about prayer. The first thing you need to do is not come and put on a performance for God. You need to own how you are before God every day. And if that's saying, I'm feeling lonely and isolated and frustrated and angry and whatever it is, well, don't put on a show for God. Tell God how you are, because he knows anyway, and then do something about it. God's grace then says, well, maybe I need to pick up the phone and ring somebody, even if it's a counselling service, if it's a, you know, an, a friend or a relative and say, I just need to talk to somebody. And if I need something right now, if you need groceries or you need anything, then we reach out. We swallow our pride a bit and say, well, I'm a bit needier than I've been before. And uh, that's how God works in and through our lives. And that's how God cares for us right now, even in the shutdown. <laughs> 